We're going to be in the book of Colossians today. If you've got a Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 4. If you don't think you have a Bible, you do. There's one right in the pew rack in front of you. And this passage is on page 1835. I'm going to read Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. In just a second, if you're a student, welcome back. We're glad to have you here. And um, let me just tell you something straight away if this is your first time. Um, we don't do anything for you, okay? And that's intentional, okay? We support as strongly as we can Navigators, InterVarsity, and Campus Crusade because we want those ministries to be there for you in the context of your learning. We think that's one of the best places to have that integration in the thick and tumble of the campus itself. On Sunday morning, you need to be part of an intergenerational, preferably also intercultural, body of Christians who are all together with children and grown-ups and everybody so that you can learn to be an intergenerational adult. Because you're not a grown-up until you can walk through those doors or the doors of some church and talk to a four-year-old and enjoy it, a 17-year-old and enjoy it, a 22-year-old and enjoy it, a 47-year-old and enjoy it, an 86-year-old and enjoy it, and actually be able to learn something for the, from the last conversation especially. And that's why not everything that we do is like people swinging and like smoke coming out of our pants and so on. Because <laughs> A, we respect you more than that. Hopefully you're more substantive than that. But also because we are very deeply committed to an intergenerational body of Christ, which you need to be a part of here or somewhere else. But we're really glad you're back. <laughs> and we love you. <laughs> I'll talk about that stuff later. Colossians 4, 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to answer everyone. Let's read that again. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. My wife once said, well, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, if you read that passage, it actually does not take um, a private school graduate to recognize what the clear point of that passage is. It's simply and flatly, you and I need to be wise in how we act towards gospel outsiders in order to make the most of every opportunity with them. We need to be wise. My wife said one time that her greatest fear of me having an affair is with a milkshake. God help me, I fit in Wisconsin. I just love those things. And um, so I want to use them to illustrate a point today that's really important to this passage because there's an assumption in this and in many places in the Bible that we don't believe because we don't want to believe it, um, but it's absolutely factually true. If you deny this, you might as well deny that two plus two equals five. Just kidding. Four. Just testing you. Um, and that is this. Aside from the direct power of God, the most effective thing in the transformation of human beings is other human beings. Aside from the direct power of God, 
who is another being, incidentally, the most effectively transformational thing to other human beings is other human beings, right? So I had lunch, um, I think it was last week, I, I, well, I, had a, I had a 1.30 meeting with um, one of the leaders at um, Mount Zion Church. And so I show up at this restaurant I've never been to, and I sit down with this guy, and he says, hey, lunch is great here, what are you having? Well, it was 1.30, I'd actually already had a lunch appointment with somebody, and I had already eaten. And so I'm kind of sitting there, he's gonna have lunch, I guess, but I already ate lunch, I'm supposed to be on a diet, so two lunches is generally not what you want when you're doing that. And so I was like, well, ugh, I hate to just drink water. Well, he eats his whole lunch, so I should have a substantive drink. I could have a milkshake. So I get my thing, and I get ready, I order, I get ready to order a milkshake. I said, well, maybe I'll get one of these milkshakes. And so he goes, well, I guess I'll, I guess I was going to eat, but I guess I'll have a milkshake. So he orders a milkshake, and I order a milkshake, and we eat milkshakes. Well, we eat slash drink them, right? Which is crazy. He was planning on having lunch. I was planning on having nothing. How do we both end up with milkshakes? <laughs> because we affected each other. He didn't want to eat lunch in front of me if I wasn't going to have lunch, but I didn't want to have lunch, but I just didn't want to have a milkshake either, but I wanted to have something, so I had a milkshake, but he didn't want to eat lunch in front of me if I'm only going to have a milkshake, and so I'm not going to have lunch, and so he just decided to have a drink, and so we all both had milkshakes, which sounds awesome, <laughs> right? This week, I, I met a guy for drinks at 3 o'clock at the Nitty Gritty to talk about some stuff, and this guy's like, He's actually like a health guy, like he's got muscles and like doesn't have a muffin top and I mean like he's like disciplined and whatever. And so I'm sitting down with this guy and he's like, and you know, the nitty gritty is a bar, turns out. And so I'm meeting a guy for drinks, which is a little weird just to start with. And then I, so we sit down and so like, okay, so we're going to have a drink. So what, what am I going to order? And what's he, right? The last time I met with this guy, I, I ate with him at like, is it Mickey's Dairy Bar downtown? Is it, is it? Okay. So that was our last meal together. I met with this guy and there I had like breakfast and like a, a milkshake and you get like two cups there, you know, it's awesome. And so he's like, oh, I know you like milkshakes. Well, they have these here, blah, blah, blah. So he orders one because we're going to have a milkshake. But like I'm training for my elk trip, right? So I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I can't do, I can't eat. So I, so I order the lamest thing on the entire menu, a Sobe Life Water. Okay, I'm going to confess, when I ordered this thing, I did not know what it was. It was in the beverage section, but now that I've drank one in its entirety, I still don't know what it is. I think it's water with 15 cents worth of crystal light in it that costs $6. But um, the point is, that's not really what I wanted. Oh, oh, and then here's the funny thing. Then he changed his order. So well, if you're going to have that, I'm going to have a... He changed his order to something with milk, malt, but not milk. Um, and that, here's the funny thing about that, right? Do you know why I got a Sobe Life Water? Because he's a health nut and I didn't want him to judge me. <laughs> I mean, like, I wanted, to get, I wanted to do something healthy. Like, that's the state of, I'm like, I'm trying to be healthy, right? But would I have been healthy without the unspoken semi-accountability that I felt in this sort of relationship? It really did have a psychological effect on me. Because if I drink, if I drink a Coke and we're talking for an hour and a half, how many Cokes am I gonna drink? Like nine, right? I might as well eat a slide of ribs right? So I get that, and then what happened? It changed what he did, right? He's like, well, I'm with a guy who doesn't eat healthy, so I'll get a milkshake. Oh, wait, you're going to have that? Well, I'm going to get this. Here's why. Because we affect each other. 
We all affect each other. You, 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 you cannot deny that truth and have any control over your own development. You cannot control the fact that you are influenced dramatically. The only thing you can control by that is who you're around and therefore who is influencing you. Which is why our parents said to us, and we swore we would never say it to our kids, and yet we do, be careful who your friends, where their friends are, right? I'm in the point of parenting now where I have a preteen, and um, Alexia and I are finally in this place where we're kind of like, do we really want her to be friends with that girl? Well, maybe she should be friends with that girl, but maybe that girl should be in this group of friends rather than the really close group of friends, and how do we go to this friend and this friend? Why? Because we know, we know, look, it doesn't matter how independent I think my kid is, I know that whoever they're closest with, they're going to be like. It's just a universal human fact. That wasn't my preteen, by the way. When you come to this idea, then, the, the question then is, there, well, therefore, you see where Paul is coming from. If Jesus came to redeem the world, Aside from the direct power of God, what is the most foundationally and effectively transforming thing for anybody in their relationship to that Jesus? It's going to be people. And so not only in the whole Old Testament is this idea that God structures a people that are meant to be beautiful so that all nations would be drawn to them. But in the New Testament, there's this very specific concept of like, here's one of the reasons why godliness is so important. It's important for a hundred other reasons, but one major reason is it's the only way gospel outsiders are ever going to understand and be attracted to the beauty of the gospel. You can see this in 1 Timothy 2. There's this passage about what, what to do in church, right? And it starts off with this. I urge you, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone— for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, right? Which, and this is a really fun time if you live in Wisconsin to live that out, because if you're a Democrat, you have a Republican governor, and if you are a Republican, you have a Democratic president. And if you are a Republican, do you devoutly and regularly pray for President Obama? Turns out, even if you don't like him, he has a difficult job. Same thing for Scott Walker, right? Turns out, even if you don't like Scott Walker, if you're a Democrat, listen, turns out he's got a difficult job. And the Bible commands you to pray for them. And if you don't, it tells us more about you and me than about them. Why is that? Because the gospel is supra-everything. And therefore, it is supra-politics. And that doesn't mean that all political views are created equal. There's no reason to believe that. There's no reason to believe that they're equally right or morally equivalent. All it means is the gospel is bigger and more important and more central than any of those views. And we are commanded to pray for all of the politicians that actually have publicly designated roles that they're supposed to do with honorability, humility, and diligence. And we're supposed to pray for them. And that's supposed to demonstrate to the entire watching world that the gospel is the biggest thing. And the gospel creates people who want other people to succeed, want other people to be successful, want other people to be helped. And they don't just want to make enemies and divisions and break things down and turn things out. And, and so the number one thing Paul says about this community in Ephesus 
is he says, when you get together for church, you pray. And when you pray, you pray for the secular proconsul. You pray for the emperor who's killing Christians all over the Christian world. You pray for these people. Now, you can pray they stop doing some things. That's totally fine. And you can pray that they would do things that they've said publicly they'll never do. But you must pray generally for them to do what's right, for them to be effective, for them to be humble, for them to be honorable, for God to give us justice, direction, and peace through their service. And when we do that, it demonstrates that we want to live peaceful and quiet lives with all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Why does it please God our Savior? Because he likes people who aren't loud? Well, if you watch cable news, maybe, right? But in addition to that, the reason this passage gives is who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is, he's arguing our willingness to pray for our secular neighbors who are our ideological enemies even demonstrates something to them that might lead them to Jesus. And what he wants is for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And because he wants that, he wants us to act in ways that makes that easier for other people. And therefore, when we do that, it pleases him. Why? Because philosophically, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That is, monotheism and the singularity of salvation in Jesus makes it necessary we act the way because there's not many ways to God. If there is one God and that God has provided a single mediator and we are the emissaries of that one God and one mediator, then how we act towards outsiders and whether the way we act towards them draws people to him is of enormous importance. It matters immensely to God and therefore to the extent to which we do it even in little ways like praying for our officials pleases him. Does that make sense? You see this in 1 Peter 2, another passage, where there's this whole section about wives living with unbelieving husbands. And the answer is, um, don't divorce the jerk because he doesn't treat you like a Christian. It's live beautifully in front of him. Live the gospel fully embodied in you and for the purpose of winning him over because you are the best picture of the gospel he's going to see. And then, as that ends, it comes into this passage. For... And then he quotes the Old Testament in Psalms. He says, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. That's not just lying. That's speech that lies. Which will include demagoguery and all the forms of obfuscation and confusing the issue. and all, That's all deceitful speech. Okay? He says, You can't do that. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do do evil. And then he says, who's going to harm you for being eager to do good? Right? Irrespective of whether or not you're a Christian and people like you because you're a Christian, if you are the kind of person who keeps your lips from deceitful speech, you don't lie, you don't demagogue, you speak truthfully and clearly, you do it respectfully, you act honestly, you're self-sacrificial towards other people, who is really going to hate you for that? Now, they might hate us for other stuff, 
and some people will. But not for that. And Peter is implicitly arguing there, therefore, more of that stuff is good in the Christian life and in the Christian church. More of that stuff would be great. Because the stuff, we want, we need a lot of that stuff going along with the stuff they'll hate us for. Or Jesus will never look beautiful to people who are on the outside. And then he says, but even if you should suffer when you're doing right, you're blessed. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, do not fear what they fear or be frightened. And then the passage many Christians know, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Therefore, for a Christian, in public speech, when other people don't play fair, can we not play fair? Yes, just rip these three pages out of your Bible. Right? It, it doesn't work. And you, but you see what's in there. There's wisdom. Be wise towards outside. There's wisdom. You've got to know how to make an answer. And you've got to be sharper, clearer, better than the people who are going to play games. Because playing games is easy. Anybody can obfuscate. Anybody can, like, demagogue and attack where you got the idea and do all kinds of idiotic things, quote statistics that aren't even, don't even exist. Anybody can make up things, right? Is it 80% of statistics are made up? Right? Anybody can do that, and most people do. And some people think they're being honest because they're repeating lies and things made up by other people. They don't even know that they're those things. Right? But he says, we are different. We're going to use wisdom. We're going to use gentleness and respect. Everything that we do is going to be according to keeping a clear conscience. And it is going to be our actions, that is, our good behavior in Christ, that is going to make them ashamed of the lies they tell about us. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to answer people. We'll get that at the very end of the sermon and how we do that. But in this passage, the thing that is going to most combat the public lies made about us is our general and consistent and unified good behavior in how we speak and in how we act. Does that make sense? And that's part of wisdom. So there's two things we can talk about, being wise in how we act and being wise in how we talk. So it says in five, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders to make the most of every opportunity, right? Um, there's a couple reasons for this, right? Outsiders need us to be that way. They need it. But actually, we need it just as bad. We need to understand the perspective of where Bible or gospel outsiders are coming from. And when we act towards what they need to see from us, it will actually affect us in a positive way that won't have anything to do with being a people pleaser. Right? There's a, I got a letter a few weeks back from a family that came to this church, and they were here about three years, and then they um, were moving to another city. And they, they, these were churchgoers, but they had had some really bad experiences in churches. 
conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-believing churches. And they said when they came here, they, this was their experience. This is how they write about it. From the beginning, we've been impressed with the leadership of the church. The level of accountability, transparency, and respect for the congregation is evident in the classes, the business meetings, and individual interactions. I've been really impressed with the humility of the men in leadership who have answered our questions, shared their mistakes, and prayed for our needs. On the first Sunday we attended, you, speaking about me, gave an apology for something you said the week before. This impressed us so much. We have often heard pastors say things they didn't, say that they didn't mean something or that something had the implications that they didn't intend. But in our lives, we had never actually heard a pastor really apologize. The fact that High Point is a place where egos are submitted to what is right is a place, and a place where this is done publicly is amazing and encouraging. Now, the reason she thought that she didn't hear what I said the week before. But you see, sometimes I, I, did not, I did not do that so that visitors would think that I was humble. I did that because I made an idiot myself the week before by saying something ridiculously foolish. And I should, and I should apologize, and so I did. Right? But they needed to see that. This same family, there was a business meeting. Um, I, they gave me permission to tell you this. Um, there was a business meeting where we were deciding what to do with a relatively trivial amount of money when you look at our whole budget. And basically, everybody was, that was at, and you know business meetings, they're longer than you want them to be, and oh my gosh, can't we just keep moving, and do we really have to debate this? And there was this point where everybody in the room basically was agreed that um, we, we were going to do something with the money, right? And it was like the elder said this, and we're going to do that, and whatever, when we really changed what we were going to do with it, but we weren't offering to give it back to people, and blah, 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 right? And the wife in this family stood up and said, I just don't really think that's right. Right? What you're saying is if people want their money back because they don't like what you're going to use the money for, they have to like come to you in person and ask for it back. But that's, like psychologically, who's going to do that? I mean, people aren't going to do that. I think the money should be used for what you said it was going to be used for or nothing. Or you should refund it to everybody. Right? And a couple people piped up right away and were like, no, that's not, I mean, the elders have discretion, blah, 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 right? And I remember thinking, okay, this is the moment. I didn't think it was going to be right now, but this is the moment where we find out some things. Because it, it, was, it wasn't really like one of those lunchroom situations where somebody stands up and everybody shouts over them, but it was kind of like, it, was, it really could go either way, and it, wasn't, it didn't seem like that big a deal. But when you got right down to the sheer logic of the morality of it, she was right, and I knew it. Now, that doesn't mean everybody else clearly thought that, but when I listened to her, her argument was valid and mine was invalid. And so I said, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. she's right. She's right, right? And people were kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and we, we voted to go that way. And after that meeting, a couple different people came up to me and said, I'm with you. You tell us where you want to go. You tell us where you want to take this church. I'm with you. If that's who you are, some woman you barely know stands up in a business meeting and morally humiliates you. And you will stop and turn around on the spot. I'm with you. That's not why I did it. So those are two me, me winning. Let's now Nick losing. And this is the second point of why we need it so bad. 
Um, Alexi and I have a dog named Samwise. He's this fluffy husky, weighs about 50 pounds. Everybody loves him. Um, I would say it wouldn't hurt a fly, but he loves to eat flies, so that's not really true. But he's very docile. He's also kind of intelligent and doesn't like to be held upon our half acre. And so, um, you know, we've got four kids. There's lots of stuff happening. And so his little electric collar is not always diligently put on him. And we didn't really know during the summer, because all the kids are home and everything's crazy, that he was kind of like slinking to the corner of the property and then like scooting through this bush and taking himself for a walk, which frankly, I admire the efficiency of that. (laughs) Right? But it turns out it's illegal. And we didn't even really know how often he was doing this until the, the fall started to change and in the woods, the, the things that grab onto pants and stuff started to turn and grab things. And so he starts coming home and stuff in his fur all the time. We're like, whoa, where are you going? You can't get that in our yard, right? So we're like, we gotta fix this. We gotta put the collar on, right? So meanwhile, our neighbor comes over. And when I say neighbor, I mean it in the wide sense because you can imagine how far a husky might go if he decided to take himself for a walk. One of our neighbors, um, put a note in our mailbox, which turns out is also illegal. And (laughs) I might still be a little bitter. And it said, um, uh, we like Snowball. We don't mind him coming around even though he leaves us a present every now and then. And, um, but here's the thing. Uh, The other day I was outside and I noticed he was in my garden and I noticed that he was eating my tomatoes. And the destruction of tomatoes is no small thing. And, you know, I freeze my tomatoes and I really enjoy getting them and I have 30 tomato plants and I've now been a month without tomatoes. You know, and it's, it's August, like, it's ba- tomatoes are almost over, basically, right? Especially with the wilting we've got. And so I'm like, of course, I'm a little like, it's one of those deals where you're like, you gotta take somebody at their word. That's crazy, right? I mean, like, you're, what you're saying is, okay, so you're talking about 30 tomato plants, for a month. So you're saying that my dog has eaten 600 tomatoes out of your garden. Like, what? Like, that's, I can't believe that. So when, I, so anyway, when I actually met with him, he was like, I, I don't tell you, I just saw him eating tomatoes. Like, anyway, so my wife and I get this letter and we're just like indignant. We're like, oh, so he goes, so here's what you should do. You should buy me a new fence for my whole garden. Not for Menards. You want chicken wire for my whole, right? And my wife and I are just kind of like, our response to this is like indignation. We're like, are you kidding me? Like, the offense doesn't fit the crime. Aren't you blowing this out of proportion? There's no way our dog is eating your tomatoes. Like, we're just having, we're like talking over the kitchen. Kind of like, this is crazy. I don't know if this guy, who is this guy? Right? And so I get in the car. I'm driving my daughter to, to soccer practice. And of course, I'm preaching on this passage this week. Right? My neighbor's not a Christian. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm following the gospel in this by telling this guy no, because if I do what he wants, this is manipulative, and I'm like, I'm like undermining the truth, and I'm going to enable this behavior, and Jesus wouldn't want that, and I need to stand right. So I'm driving, and I'm thinking, is this the wisest way, and the in a gracious way to deal with an outsider? So take it out of the whole moral, uh, but is this how Jesus would want me to beautify the gospel to this person who's an outsider? And so I'm weighing how they would respond to a grace, like a gracious, yeah, okay, sure, I just went, and uh, no, you can't tell me to do this, right? 
And I go, no, you know what? It's really hard. And then, and then it came crashing in. The real issue was the money. I didn't want to spend the money. That's the real issue. I, it'd be like $75, and I don't want to do that. Right? And I'm like, crap, that's a terrible reason. That's called greed. If I don't want to do the right thing because I don't want to spend the money to do the right thing, that's called greed. Right? It's not as pretty when you talk about it that way, is it? And so then, I, then it began to come down to me that, wait a second. Isn't the biggest problem that everybody has with accepting the gospel that they minimize what they do, they expect other people to take responsibility for what they do, they don't actually repent, they justify themselves, and they will not actually say that they were wrong, submit to the truth, repent, and seek reconciliation. My dog was in his yard. It does not matter if my dog was eating his tomatoes. Right? What matters is I am a bad homeowner. I am a bad pet owner. I didn't properly parent my children. I didn't properly... It's a small thing to me. My fluffy dog that's not going to hurt anybody has been running around. What's the big deal? The big deal is it's illegal. It inconveniences all of my neighbors. It's irresponsible. That's the big deal. And it started to come crashing home that this was going to be a little different than I thought it was going to be when I first got the letter. And so we talked to the kids, and then um, Abby said, um, she's like, Dad, because there's also a verse in the Bible that I learned where if somebody asks for your coat, you should give them your shirt, too. Like, I was like, thank you, also a verse that applies. That's, <laughs> that's great. Awesome, right? Which means not only do I need to do what he asked for, I need to do more than that. Right? So I went over there and talked to the guy, first of all, because he's my neighbor, and I should talk to him. And I apologize. I was like, look, I'm really sorry. You didn't specify how much fence you wanted. Maybe you could tell me, and we could write it. And then I realized that he was not nearly—I I thought he was like—no, he wanted an additional fence to keep my dog out of his— So it wasn't like he was going to tear his old one out, and I was going to buy him a new one, not from Menards. He, he just wanted two more feet of fence so that he could keep my dog out of his garden, which is perfectly reasonable. Right? If you're not going to do your job, Nick, can I at least keep your dog out of my garden even if he's going to run all over my yard? That's a pretty reasonable request. Right? And I got to talk to them. I was like, I was like no, look, I did this. I want you to be happy. Let me just do this. It'd be great. And then, and then I told the kids, listen, tomorrow you pick, you pick a bunch of tomatoes out of our garden and you bring them over to him. Right? Yeah. The point, here's the point. Was that helpful for him? I don't know. I don't know. I don't presume to know his thought. Hopefully, I didn't continue to do more damage through my irresponsibility by my response to that. But here's what I do know. I know that when I did what Jesus told me to do, to think about how he would see it, how he would respond to it, how I could make Jesus beautiful to him in a way that's completely according to conscience, I actually found that a bunch of stuff about my sin I wasn't going to see otherwise on a level and on a level of intensity that came home to roost in a way that I apparently did not find any other way. And it was pretty humiliating. And so good for me. So loving of God to use that, to do that for me. And so I got to repent and say I was wrong and tell my kids I was wrong and tell my wife I was wrong and tell my wife she was wrong. And <laughs> And to try to obey the gospel, and then I got a really good sermon illustration that killed like 15 minutes of my sermon. <laughs> Just kidding. It wasn't quite that long. Um, the point is, is that 
we need to recognize that. Um, and we need to recognize that when we understand how other people need us to act, and I don't mean be whatever they want you to be, because it says according to conscience. It can only be the right thing for the right reason. But it needs to be self-sacrificially what they need to see in us. And the only, and guess here's the thing, guess what? You can't fake that very well very long. People can lie all the time when they talk, but they only lie about half the times in what they do. And if you are a liar in what you do, you'll slip up. And so the only way you can really live toward other people in the way that what they need to see about Jesus is if you really are that thing. And when you ask, how will my non-Christian neighbor see this? Sometimes you have to deal with them on their perspective, but half the times they see what's actually there. My self-righteousness, my obliviousness to their needs, my unloving desire to put myself first and to trivialize what might be important to them. Okay, I don't have time to do this. We'll do that another time. Um, it's a nice slide though, right? Okay, so the second thing is we need to be wise in what we say. We need to be wise in how we act towards gospel outsiders. We need to be wise in what we say toward gospel outsiders. Verse 6 says, Let your conversation, so we're talking about talking now, right? Be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, when most New Testament scholars get a hold of this, they do the exact same thing I did the first time I read this, in like first 50 times I've read this, and they, they key in on, because the only phrase that's, it's not obvious what it means is seasoned with salt, right? That's the only non-literal phrase in the verse. Everything else is perfectly clear, generally speaking, if you know what grace is, right? So let your conversation be full of grace, okay? Seasoned with salt. So what does that mean? Is that something related to the grace? So it's full of grace, Seasoned with salt, that's somehow... The controlling idea is be wise, right? Be wise. And so, when you get to this, when you get to the word salt, if you're like a New Testament story, you'd be like, oh, let's look at all the places in the New Testament where the word salt is used, and then surely we'll know how, what this means. That actually won't help. I did that, it doesn't really help. Because most of the places salt is used in the New Testament, people puzzle over what it means. But the key word actually is the word seasoned which shows up almost nowhere else in the New Testament. See, the, the issue here is, is that when you prepare food, there is something that is a very small portion of the thing itself, but makes a very big difference in the production of the thing itself. Good seasoning can be one one-hundredth of the food presented and make a hundred percent difference in the taste quality of the food received. And wisdom is like that. Wisdom is like that. Your conversations and my conversations should be full of grace. They should also be full of wisdom. And wisdom is not something you can talk about. You can say something in your conversation. You want to fill your conversation with grace like you want to fill a stodgy Wisconsin winter meal with like stew, right? Or hot instant potatoes, which are good for you, right? Because that's, you're right, that's like, it's, it's substantive. So when you talk, gracious speech should be a big portion of what you say, but wisdom isn't something you say. It has to be sprinkled into everything. Everything you say should be wise. 
even when the thing you're trying to communicate isn't grace. You can say everything graciously, but there's some things you will say to communicate grace. If you're saying something to communicate wisdom, you're probably just trying to intellectually show off and you look really stupid. You say something about something else and that thing is either wise or foolish. It's, it's the seasoning in it, it's not the substance of it. Does that make sense? And so when we have conversations with people, we want to speak with grace, but we want everything that comes out of our mouth to be so seasoned with wisdom that we know how to answer everybody. Because the answer we give everybody isn't going to sound gracious. Sometimes you're going to have to talk to them and be like, nope, I disagree 100%. I love you. Did you see the catch of grace at the end? You, you can't do that. And the Bible actually doesn't teach that. But what you have to recognize is that without the seasoning of wisdom in everything, it doesn't work. And here's the thing. You and I are not nearly as wise as we want to think we are. Wisdom is something developed and fought for and read for and mentored for and worked for and sought after and over decades. It's one of the reasons why we're so committed to an intergenerational church because we believe that if you don't waste your life, which many people do, as you advance in age, there can, there, you have a much greater opportunity for the accumulation of wisdom. And younger people should be looking for those people among the more mature generations who have actually accumulated it and seek to learn from them very diligently. Otherwise, don't bother praying the prayer, God, please help me live a life where I don't learn every lesson the hard way. You're going to learn every lesson the hard way because you're foolish. If you don't want to live a life where you learn every lesson the hard way, go find somebody with a gray head or that doesn't wear form-fitting jeans and talk with them and see if they're wise. And if they are, ask if you can come over and fold their laundry while they talk to you. Not to be judgmental. The same three things are in the Peter passage, right? Wisdom, be wise in how you talk. Do it with full of grace, gentleness, and respect. How? You have to have a clear conscience. You can't fake it or do something. You, what you have to do has to be honorable, truthful, and your conscience has to be clear, and it has to accompany real action, right? Your good behavior. One, one of the things that we need to recognize is just where we need to understand where people are coming from in our actions, that has to do with our speech as well. One of the things... Some of you that know me well know that I love economics, especially macroeconomics. And over the last eight or ten months, I've been specifically focusing on reading um, about American economic underclasses, why they persist, especially um, in the African-American community. And um, frankly, one of the books I did not want to read because it was written by a professor that is, holds a completely different view of macroeconomics than me is this one, um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I, I knew that the, her whole premise of where she was coming from I wasn't going to agree with because I knew I didn't agree with her view of macroeconomics because I won't say why. But, the, but what I did know is that she had saturated herself in a bunch of studies that I wasn't going to hear about anywhere else. And a lot of the sources that I, that I would go through, a lot of the people I listened to, the, the stuff that she listened to, it wasn't the same streams. And so I knew that if I would, I listened to her and then I could go test those ideas. And what I also realized was that every African-American leader I talked to in the entire city of Madison and in Tennessee and some other places, all of them knew of the book, 
Almost all of them had bought it, and a few of them had read it. And so I thought, I want to I read what these brothers and sisters are reading. I want to understand it so we can have an intelligent conversation. And, and I did. I listened to that whole book on an audible, driving cross country and riding around the city, and I listened to every word of it. And then I went and I bought um, Please Stop Helping Us by Jason Riley, African-American who writes for the Wall Street Journal, kind of on the different so- other side of things. And I-, I listened to what he had to say about it and where he disagreed with her. And, and I still don't know what I think about it. But I think I know, if I sit down with anybody, I know what questions to ask. I know what the conversation is right. And here's why. It's not just because I want to be right economically. And it's not just because I want to know how maybe our church can be involved in helping people who need help in our city. Because I don't think the government's the answer for a lot of things. I think we could be the answer for some of those things. But I also want to just understand where people are coming from. What they're thinking. Because here's the thing. If you come here to church and you listen to me talk for a couple of years about Jesus... And your assumptions move. And you take the Bible seriously. It's not that long before you start start to forget what it's like mentally to be in a world in which Jesus isn't Lord. And you can't even talk with people. Most people don't even know what their assumptions are. Almost nobody's articulate enough to be like, okay, wait a second here. We're having this conversation. It's not going anywhere. Here's why. I think you have these seven assumptions that I don't share. And I think I have these nine that you don't. When was the last time that happened in an argument you had? I'm going to wager never. Okay? And if you and I have to do the work, we have to ask ourselves, where is this person coming from? How do they feel? What experience? I just talked to a guy last service out in that lobby who's like, I'm a freshman on campus, and I'm living with all non-Christian guys in the dorm, and they're just coming after my Christian faith, and I feel like I want to get trained about how to argue with them and, and like answer these questions. And I'm like, dude, they will give you that education. Just ask questions. I told them other stuff too. Read this, talk to this crew staff worker, go to bethinking.org, the InterVarsity's European website, and apologize. I did all that too. But I also said, listen, don't be intimidated. Just ask them questions. Not like a lawyer, like you're fighting, but be like, well, why do you think that? Why do you think that it's more plausible not to believe in God than to believe in God? Why do you think that there are many ways to God? It just seems like that's an intuitive assumption do you have, is there like an argument for that? Like, why would you believe that? It sounds like intuition more than it, or like, um, you, so you believe that the problem of suffering is the one that proves God's non-existence. And there's just like, there's a hundred, I mean, there's just piles of philosophers in America that aren't Christians that say that the philosophical arguments on the problem of suffering aren't conclusive. So, I mean, it sounds like that's an intuition. Like, you feel like there's too much suffering. Is there a reason for that? Have you had an experience? What's the, how would you formulate that argument? They will give you the education. But here's the thing. If you don't ever think about how they're feeling and how they're thinking and how they talk and so on, and you don't think of it in terms of, like, figuring out how I can talk with somebody, if we think about it just in terms of defending what we believe or they're going to shake me up here or what's going to happen and they're attacking Jesus, I need to defend Jesus. And, like, th- that's not helpful. We have to be wise enough to know how to talk to people. Now, some of the time it's going to be like very cordially and we need to ask questions. I, like one of the things I told him, I said, listen, listen for 12 units of listening time for every one you talk. Right? It's the Nicky Gumbel rule. Nobody wants to listen until they've first been heard. Listen to them long enough that when you finally tell them what you think, they, they can't not listen because they'd have to be ashamed of themselves because you've listened to them for so long. Right? And I say, I said, keep asking questions to narrow down the objection. Because if they talk for an hour, an hour and you actually just help them narrow things down, they'll ultimately get to a question you can actually answer in two minutes. 
And when you answer it, it like blows up the whole hour-long conversation they just had, and they kind of feel like an idiot. But not humiliated. They just kind of go, that was really— If they talk with you and it's a clarifying experience rather than a fight, that's much better. Right? Now, just put your hand over there. I'm just kidding. Uh, Now, what you need to recognize, though, is that being gentle and having respect— Having a conversation full of grace is not the same thing as being weak. Meek does not mean weak. Now, that should not be an excuse for you to yell at people, but it does mean that as we show grace to people, we have to have courage. Um, There's this, to these two verses of the Bible, I always laugh when I find these on atheist websites, arguing that the Bible is full of terrible contradictions, because these verses are like, it's the next verse. They're They're connected. Like, how closed-minded do you have to be to believe that two verses that are the next line from each other, that whoever wrote them was so stupid that they didn't realize that the next sentence they wrote contradicted the one before? I mean, that's, that's an unsympathetic reading, I would argue, right? But, but listen to it. It really sounds like a contradiction. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. See? It's the problem. Okay, so if somebody's being a fool, that is, talking rot in a ridiculous way, the manner in which they speak does not accord with Psalm 14 or 1 Peter chapter 3 or Colossians 4, and what they're saying doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's foolish according to these texts, right? What do you do? Do you answer him or don't you? Don't answer a fool according to his folly or you're going to become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be wise in his own eyes. See the problem? The whole point of the wisdom literature is to make us think a little bit so that we can become, say it with me if you want, wise. That's why it's so ironic when somebody looks at this and goes, oh, it's a contradiction. Close the Bible, throw it away. So ironic, even if it's not the Word of God. That's really ironic. The whole point is it's supposed to look like a contradiction because you're supposed to feel confused so that you'll think about it and realize what it's teaching. And what it's teaching is, is clear if you think about it, right? The first one is referring to manner. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll become like him yourself. The undignified, dishonorable, obfuscating the deceitful speech way in which they're putting forward their argument is morally bankrupt. If you answer him like that, you will be drawn into that way of combating those ideas and you will become linguistically unvirtuous. You will talk raw. You'll be a sinful speaker. You'll have a lying tongue. You cannot do that if you're a Christian. That does not mean you can't be combative. What it means is you can't play dishonest games, which is exactly why I have a lot of grace for Christians that are on radio shows or talk shows or on CNN sound, because you get like one minute, somebody accuses you of 17 things, and you have to try to answer them in 14 seconds. That's why I don't watch any cable news in which people talk about anything opinion. I don't watch any of it. The whole thing is set up to make us immoral. 
It's flat. I mean, I don't know if that's their intention. That's the, that's the effect. The effect of a two-minute conversation about what we should do in Iraq is to make us immoral. That's the only thing that gets accomplished. It's better to just have somebody on the left or right give their opinion and make an argument than to have two people accuse each other of 19 things, and then what it does is it forces the, it tempts the other person so dramatically to respond unvirtuously. You get two unvirtuous responses to each other, and everybody who's watching is pushed morally down. It'd be great if every one of those shows had terrible ratings so they'd go, hey, we should start another William F. Buckley Jr. Crossfire where people actually talk to each other substantively for an hour. Which I would love. Right? Because the next verse says, you actually have to answer the fool according to the folly of his content. In accordance with the folly that he says, you have to actually be able to speak into that with virtuous clarity and say, that statistic is actually from nowhere. Right? I was having a conversation with somebody who was saying things were statistically true. I was like, that's so good. That's so helpful for you to tell me that thing that is statistically true. Can you tell me where you got that statistic from? Oh, you got it from this news website. Do you know where they got it from? Because they didn't cite it. Right? It, and you start tracing these things back, and like, they lead nowhere. Right? And, and you don't have to be mean, but you can be like, look, I'm not going to believe in something scientific that totally undermines common sense about humanity in every way possible without talking about the study. We're going to both have to read it. Nobody ever has done that in the history of the world. Right? No, I, no conversation that I've had yet with anybody who disagrees with me when I say, what's the study? Let's find the study. What's the journal? Let's both get a copy of the journal article and let's talk. Let's both read it. The whole, not how it's mediated through CNN, but let's both read the journal article and see if it proves the thing you're saying it proves or that I'm saying it proves. No one has ever gone that far with me. Not once. But that's my tactic with people who talk raw oftentimes about studies. Because I'm answering the fool according to his or her folly. You think you know everything. You think you're so scientific. You've never actually read any of the science yourself. Are you kidding me? Right? I just, I just ask people, oh, you know that about that. Awesome. I'm so glad you're sharing this with me. Can you please name even t- maybe two studies that you actually read the study itself? Good luck. Maybe if you're arguing with a professor at UW, and it's in their field and in their subfield. My experience is that with even very high-level professors, that unless the thing is in the subfield of the subfield of the subfield that they focus on, they haven't read it, they just talked to their colleague one time. Which is fine, maybe they're right, but let's just agree we've all just believed somebody. Somebody that we found emotionally plausible told us something was true and we believed it because we didn't have any good reason otherwise. It fit with what we already thought and they seemed reasonable enough. And that's how we know 97% or something, that's a made up statistic, of everything that we know. We've actually personally verified virtually nothing. You have to answer a fool according to his folly in terms of content. You have to be wise and shrewd, and you have to get in there, and you have to have courage. Meekness doesn't mean weakness, but you can't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. 
Because when you get all the way down to that passage, um, Proverbs 26 is really funny because it has 11 verses on fools and how ridiculous they are, right? Whip is for the horse, the halter for a donkey, and the rod for the back of fools. Like, it's, it's all the stuff about fools being kind of ridiculous. And then it gets down to verse 12 and it says this. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We've got to be wise in how we act. We've got to be wise in what we say. And here's the problem. You're not. I'm not. I'm not wise in how I act. I'm not wise in what I say, and neither are you for the most part. And here's the thing. Um, Here's the solution. Are you ready for the solution? Read everything ever published. And integrate it perfectly intellectually in your mind. That's probably not going to work. I've been trying for years, and basically, I'm not achieving it. That's my idol. I want to know everything. I want to integrate every thought and all. I want to have the mind of God himself in an idolatrous way as well as in a, a way I want to just help people. I, it's bo- both are in me. But we, listen, if you think you're, you've got it, there's more hope for a fool than for you. But there's this verse in Luke where Jesus is talking to some people that think that they know it all. They think that they're perfectly wise. And he says, listen, there was a day back in the time of Solomon, the great king of wisdom, and there was a probably four-foot-six-inch African lady who ruled most of Northeast Africa named Candace. And she traveled from her home to Jerusalem just to talk with Solomon because she wanted wisdom that bad. She'd do anything. She'd do anything. And on Judgment Day, she's going to rise up and she's going to look you and me in the face, and she's going to say, I wanted wisdom so much that I was willing to travel to hear King Solomon, and he was nothing compared to Jesus. Nothing. And Jesus said to them, he said, listen, she will rise up and condemn you because one greater, that is, whenever you refer to Solomon, you're referring to wisdom in the Bible. One greater than Solomon is here. The Bible says that the Word of God, including the Word of God incarnate, makes the simple, that is, the foolishly ignorant, us, wise. It says in Proverbs 3 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These things must come together before they can be built upon. And the Scriptures and the man Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for you, is the one in whom all wisdom dwells. And so for many of us, for most of us, the thing we need the most at this moment is to come to the crucified and risen Lord of all things wise, who is himself the embodiment of the word of God, all divine wisdom, and who can make us sufficiently wise that we could act wisely towards outsiders and then make us really good at apologizing for all the rest of the time. But listen, you guys, none of us can do this in small proportion. If 30 of us got together and said, hey, 
you and me, you and me, and us, we're going to do this. We're going to be godly. We're going we're to live with wisdom towards outsiders. They're going to see that Jesus is beautiful. We're dead in the water. Can't do anything. It's got to be all of us. We all have to do it. Every, every single person, all of you, everyone, we have to take so personally and so deeply that this is, what this, this is what the city needs. This is what the world needs. This is what every gospel outsider needs. They need all of us demolishing the bigotry of the stereotypes against the gospel because we don't embody them anymore and we actually live above them and beyond them so much that those who would continue to slander us would be ashamed of themselves. We need to take away their good reason for believing those, and they have plenty. And we need to give them such a, such a greater reason to disbelieve their stereotypes about us and what may not be bigotry against us, but it's definitely bigotry against Jesus so that they can come to the one God and the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people so that anybody who would come could believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be people of wisdom. Help us to be wise. Help us to be wise in Christ. Help that to affect everything we say and everything that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.